This is The Healthy Sensitive, episode 26. Welcome, everybody, to The Healthy Sensitive. I'm Leah Burkhart, your hostess on the show. And today I want to continue the conversation about, you know, helping to really craft a life for highly sensitive people that allows them to develop robust health. Because, you know, really, the reason I'm so passionate about this is when highly sensitive people are properly cared for, when we do take care of ourselves, we are awesome creatures. We are creative, we are uh, empathetic, uh, we are insightful, we can be incredibly intelligent. We're just a lot of fun to hang around. We are the people you want to invite over to talk about the deep stuff. And that's all well and good, but if we are not taking care of ourselves, we're none of those things. We're the equivalent of two-year-olds tantruming in front of the coloring book station in a a bookstore. for those who remember bookstores. <laughs> anyway, we're not a lot of fun to hang out with when we don't take care of ourselves. And conversely, when we do, we're a blast. So for that reason, I really want to help other highly sensitive people develop tools and routines that help them not just sort of survive their daily lives, but really be able to thrive, really be able to sort of flourish. Part of that is developing uh, resilience, like mental resilience. So when I put out the survey a couple of episodes ago, I talked about this, uh, about you know what are some of the top health concerns of highly sensitive people. Uh, one of the first things that came up was weight management, hence the episode last week. And the second most common was uh, sort of anxiety, depression, uh, the sense of overwhelm. And so I wanted to dedicate or devote some time to I didn't want to just focus on anxiety or just focus on depression. In my mind, they're so connected that it was sort of difficult to just untangle them. And both of them are alleviated by engaging in a very particular set of mental activities. So today, what I wanted to talk about then are those mental activities. So rather than just saying, oh yeah, anxiety sucks. It's like, well, yeah, thanks. We know. Uh, So what do I do about it? That's what I want to spend the bulk of this show talking about. I'm actually using, in terms of how I'm organizing this information, I'm taking from Dan Siegel's, I, I really hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly. So Dr. Dan Siegel developed a framework for this. In his mind, there are what he called seven daily essential mental activities to optimize brain matter and create well-being. So he's definitely coming from the place of, again, mental activities. I would add one more thing into this mix. So seven out of the eight things we'll be talking about today are from Dan Siegel. Highly recommend you look at some of his work. Uh, He called this, his framework that he used was called the healthy mind platter which I think is great because I love the idea of platters. I'm a food junkie, so obviously I would absolutely love platter. The other eighth ingredient that I'm going to use is nutrition, you know, eating well, because in my mind, 
nutrition really feeds into how well we can engage in some of these other mental activities. Uh, and again, so I just wanted to sort of discern between those two things, and I'll do my best to make sure that I continue to credit Dan Siegel for each of these ingredients uh, because it's great work. So the first out of his seven in terms of uh, mental activities, ingredients for a healthy mind is uh, what he called focused time. Focus time, generally the way we think about it, probably the best example is when you're at work. So when you're focused on a task, you're going to a place where you're doing a thing that requires your attention. That's focus time. But it doesn't have to be at your work. Um, you can be focused on a puzzle. You can be focused on a project. You could be focused on a podcast that you're doing in the privacy of your own home. So it's something that is goal-oriented. It uh, challenges you. It sort of engages you in a very particular way. And it really helps us develop connections in the brain. We all need that. So I think there's this mistaken assumption that if you want to be healthy, you have to be relaxed all the time. And that doesn't actually seem to be true. If you're relaxed all the time, you can actually lose a sense of purpose. Uh, you can develop a what the French call ennui, if I'm pronouncing it right. We all need a bit of focused time, a sense of purpose. The next ingredient that he goes into is it's, it's inverse, playtime. It's when we are not focused but are open. We're not trying to do it right. We're just trying to play. We're playing when we're doodling. We're playing when we're being silly. We're playing when we are in a sandbox. Uh, play can look different from all people, from anybody, from everyone. Wow, I'm not saying this well at all. Uh, play looks different for everyone. Really, it's just about enjoying a novel experience. Having an ability to sort of get some of that energy out is essential. If you want to see an example of this, I'm not even kidding, folks. You can tell I'm a puppy mom. Uh, get a dog. I have a dog. Her name is Remy. You will hear her name again. <laughs> she, we, uh, my fiancé and I got her when she was only two months old. And she was the most adorable little fur baby you could ever hope to see uh, because she's mine, so obviously she's the best. And when I, I remember what it felt like to walk into the space and see this little puppy. And it was, there was a litter of them. And I looked at her, and she looked at me, and she came right up to me, and I picked her up because at that time she was small enough that I could. And the woman who was fostering the puppies looked at me, and she said, well, you know, what do you think? And obviously, like with tears glistening my eyeballs and threatening to crumble, it's like, well, obviously I'm going to take her. So I bring home my first ever puppy, first ever dog. And... I was a, I am a runner. I love to run and I love to hike. And I thought, you know, she was a very high energy puppy. She's still a high energy dog. And I thought, ha, I got this. I will destroy you. I mean, not really, but I just assumed I would burn off all her energy by taking her on hikes and taking her on runs with me. And no, <laughs> for some, I could take her on, I don't think I ever took her on a marathon run, but really long runs. And she'd just get bored. At a certain point, like, she'd burn off some of that uh, sort of physical energy, but it didn't quite do it. Uh, I, It was never the same 
as it would be if, while on a trail, someone else with a dog met me and the two dogs were allowed to play together. In the same way, I actually eventually discovered a sort of like a puppy daycare. <laughs> you know you're in the first world problems. My dog has got so much energy, I have to take it to daycare. <laughs> But it was, we probably do it once a week. Uh, we drop her off and there's this like open play structure that dogs can just play. And it's sort of like going to a dog park, except it's indoors and someone else is watching them. And, you know, once a week, it's great because I don't have to worry about her when I'm at work. And there, it's just different. They, she's not running, I don't think, nearly as much as when she's running by my side. But there's this, there's so much engagement. You see a dog at play and it's like you can tell they're communicating, they're wrestling, they're barking. There's just so much going on there. And their little puppy brains are just like, bah! oh my God, life is amazing. And then if I take her home after even an hour of that, she just crumbles on the bed. It's beautiful. For all of the rest of my highly sensitive people, you know the importance of a good night's sleep. And let me tell you, an energized and revved up puppy is not conducive to good sleep. So, you know, if you we aren't that different. We like to think we are. We like to think we're much more complicated. But we, too, are animals. That's it's, We're just kind of animals with prefrontal cortexes. And, you know, we walk on two legs. That's the difference. But we need that play. It's a different flavor of engagement. And it's not that focus time isn't essential. It is. But so is play. And I think it's unfortunate that we sort of lose that. We're hungry for it, but we lose it as we grow into adulthood. It's just understood that we have recess when we're at school. And as adults, it's like, oh, that's just childish. Um, And maybe it is, but we still need it. The third ingredient, or essential mental activity, as he calls it, is connection, so connecting time. There's, according to his research, something very special about having the person directly in front of you. So ideally, you would want this being to be in person. You can, there's just so much you're, I'm going to mess up the numbers, but what I do know to be true is in communication, I think it's something like 85% of all communication is communicated through body language. And then it's like 10% or five or 10% that's through tone. And then only this tiny little fraction that we communicate through words. Uh, It's why in my personal view, when we're texting each other, we've gotten so attached to emojis because we're trying to recreate the power of what we get organically when we're in front of a person, you know, like, I can't wait to see you, exclamation point smiley face. Gee, can't wait to see you, sarcastic face. I don't even know if that's actually an emoji, but you know, tone and uh, facial expressions are tremendously powerful. So when you're trying to connect to another person, being in front of them is tremendously powerful. We are social creatures. Uh, There's been research on this a lot of the research is actually really controversial. So one experiment in particular that I'm thinking of uh, is, oh dear, I don't remember what species of ape it was, uh, but young, I'm going to say young monkeys, and I'm being extremely unscientific, my apologies, were taken from their mothers. 
which by the way is horrible, and as my highly sensitive self can tell all of you, you know, shame on you people, but what they discovered when they did this, so they gave this uh, one young baby they gave to a, was it just one? Maybe it was just one. I'll have to do, I'll have to check again, but at any rate, this young baby monkey was put in a cage, and in the cage there was a sort of a, a wire structure that was designed to look like a mother monkey, mother gorilla, whatever, again, whatever, whatever ape it was. I don't remember which. And then another was fluffy and warm, but it didn't have any milk. So the wiring structure that was designed to look like a monkey was sharp. It had some rough edges. It was not inviting, but it's where it had the food. The other... I and mean, neither of these two things were alive, but the other would appear to be more alive and it was more comfortable and more comforting. Uh, again, didn't have any milk. And the young, this little baby ape, went directly toward the most, the, the soft, cuddly-looking mother that this poor little baby could burrow into. And the baby would more willing to starve than to go into this wiry structure to get food and sustenance. Touch is extraordinarily important. Connection is extraordinarily important. Uh, there was also an experiment done in our own species, humans, where infants were not touched or fondled or played with or you know there was no cuddling that was happening fondled is probably the wrong word but you know like there was no affectionate touch given to these infants and they died or became extremely ill they were fed but they just weren't touched so to imagine that we can i mean i know in our country as it stands right now we are very much the the go-getter you know, suck it up, buttercup. It's, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. I don't need anybody that couldn't be farther from the truth. We all need some level of connection. Uh, the next, physical time. Time to move. I, I don't know if I would have gotten along with Descartes. So he, Descartes is a philosopher. He was the guy famous for the line, I think, therefore I am. And it started with him damn it. So he was the guy who's just like, he managed to create an argument where it's like, there's the mind and then there's the body and the mind is superior. He was the father of all of that. Thanks, buddy. So he separated these two concepts. And we've developed an environment where we are constantly, you know, mind over matter. And we are engaged in our computers. We are engaged in I don't even know. It's just we, we give so much weight to our brains and to our minds and so very little to our physical bodies. And the truth is, when we move those bodies, it actually helps our brains. So sorry, folks, you don't get to get out of moving. <laughs> moving is not just physically helpful for your body. It's not just going to help your blood pressure come down. It's not just going to help your muscles be strong. It feeds oxygen to the brain, it gives it, uh, it strengthens the brain in many ways as well. I mean, it is a muscle. So when you move, particularly aerobic, aer aerobically, <laughs> if medically possible, uh, an extremely important activity for the mind. Uh, next one, time in. 
So examples of this would be meditation. It's when you're focusing on sensations, images, uh, it can be feelings or thoughts. You're kind of, you're going inward. It's that experience you have when you're thinking about your thoughts. So I don't know if you've ever done this before, but if you've just kind of sat and gone, huh, I'm thinking about my kitchen. I'm thinking that I don't remember if I turned the burner off. I'm pretty sure I turned the burner off. Wow, not a very interesting thought. So it's like there's the thoughts that are happening, and then there's you in the space observing those thoughts. That's time in. Then there's downtime. So time in and downtime can get confused pretty frequently, but time in is intentional. Uh, it is actually rather focused, and there's reflection, there's, a f there's um, intention. Downtime is kind of the opposite of that. Downtime is you're just not focused, there's no goal, you're letting your mind wander, you're just kind of, you're just kind of daydreaming. You know, because you don't really want to think about stuff. You see kids do this a lot, or at least I do. I've seen my niece just sort of space out. And she's not meditating. She's just kind of off somewhere. She's somewhere else. That daydreamy state, that downtime that uh, I was talking to a, a friend. What we would call, like in terms of the mental activity zone, this would sort of be akin to green zones in urban city planning, you know, where you've planned for there not to be something built in a section. And it's like, we're going to call that a green zone. You want to schedule in some green zone time that is unfocused, just designed for you to be, I'm going to dare to use this word, lazy. Um, number seven is sleep time. Oh, but the importance of sleep. I don't need to share this with you. All of my highly sensitive peeps out there, you know how important sleep is to you. If you get sleep, you can take on the universe. If you get sleep, nothing is insurmountable. If you get sleep, everything else is possible. If you do not, you can't, you can't get to the surface for air. You drown. Everybody needs sleep. It's absolutely essential for all people, but it just seems to be especially important for highly sensitive people because we need to recharge our battery so it's not just that we need to charge it more often. It's that recharging it is so is so much more important. Uh, I, I use this phrase a lot. We're, we just have a really short karmic leash. You know, we mess up in some of these areas and we feel it painfully and immediately. And then, again, the final ingredient that I'm going to add into the mix here is nutrition and specifically balancing your blood sugar. In my experience, people don't focus well when they're hangry. And for those who don't know what that means, so hungry, you're angry, so hangry. Uh, it's not really, I'm less playful and humorous if I haven't eaten. Uh, I have absolutely no capacity to connect to another human being if I'm hungry. Screw you, buddy. I need food. Uh, physical time, if you think I'm going to go work out, I mean, I could, but I really don't want to. I need sustenance. Time in, all I'm going to be thinking about when I'm reflecting upon my innermost thoughts is, wow. I really want a sandwich. <laughs> uh, in my downtime, all I'm going to hear is... Uh, that's my stomach, by the way. When my stomach is empty, it sounds like a raptor. <laughs> and then, uh, actually, when I'm 
when I'm on an empty stomach, if I haven't eaten uh, at a an appropriate amount of food uh, at an appropriate amount of time before bed, I don't sleep. My blood sugar crashes. So I either sleep and wake up in the middle of the night or I don't get to sleep because my stomach is rumbling. So these are that's just sort of my addition to all of this. And I understand why Dan Siegel wouldn't have put it in here because it's not technically a mental activity. But as far as I'm concerned, it just seems so connected to all of these things. And in fact, there's plenty of research out there that is showing the gut-brain connection is extremely intimate. So it's for this reason that when we are eating healthy diets, we tend to also have mental clarity. And when we have that mental clarity, we're more capable of making better choices about our food. Uh, there's this, when we have a healthy gut biome, uh, our mental capacity seems higher. And so when our mental capacity is higher, we, again, eat the healthy foods that help the gut biome to flourish. Yeah, anyway, so the trick to all of this, though, the, the good news is there's no one formula that's gonna, supposed to fit everyone. Um, the bad news, though, is that there's no one formula that's going to fit everyone. I can tell you what works for me, but that won't necessarily work for you. So I can tell you that I like to focus a lot. I mean, if I'm not spending, if, if I don't feel like I have work that holds purpose for me, uh, I can get extremely depressed rather quickly. So I won't be anxious, but there's this, I guess, sort of existential lull. I don't want to call it a crisis, but there's this, meh. And so I need that sense of focus. I need a sense of purpose. And I want to say, too, it's, I don't want to lend the impression that, oh, well, if your job doesn't make you focus all the time, then you need to get a different job. No, there's a difference between work, like focused work, and job. Uh, it's, it's great if you can integrate them together. Um, I've been really lucky in this way. I've managed to really pull together um, a way to bridge together focus time and the time that I spend in my job. Uh, I like what I do at my job, and so there's a lot of time that I'm focused on things that are important to me. But not everyone has that, and that's honestly okay. We'll talk a little bit about different ways that this can surface. And in fact, for a lot of people, it doesn't actually make sense to do it that way. Some people, they want to have sort of a mindless job so that they can spend all of their bandwidth at home on the thing that they really love. And some people love that. I mean, Albert Einstein, who, the more I learn about him, all I can say is 100% highly sensitive person. Just so obvious. So, thanks for representing, Einstein. <laughs> but he worked in a patent office, which he loved because it required virtually no bandwidth of him. And because of that, he could just sort of space out and think and reflect and contemplate. And because of those long stretches of time available to him, ideas just kind of bubble to the surface. So you don't have to have your focus time and your work time be one and the same. They can be, but they don't have to be. And I think for many highly sensitive people, they're frequently separate. Um, in terms of play time, play looks different for all people. So a lot of my zinging firefly, extroverted friends, whom I love, have a very different uh, version of play than me. 
They're the ones dressing up in Halloween costumes and meeting other people in the city. They're the ones, like, going to, like, they're dancing with hundreds of other people. They're, they're going into bars where people are yelling at the top of their lungs. Like, this is play. It's rife with opportunity for spontaneity. I love that they love it. And sometimes if I'm in the right place, I can appreciate it and potentially even love it as well. But play for me, I mean, when I'm writing poetry, I'm playing. Um, or even if I'm journaling, I'm playing. It's just this really, I love to write. I love to think. Um, and I just, I mean, when I'm messing around with my puppy, like I'm just playing with her and we're roughhousing or we're running together. That's play. Going to the gym, it's play. So play looks different for everybody. I don't want you to think that play only appears in that extroverted, flashy, go-getter style. Love it, appreciate it, but that's just not my, necessarily my style. Or to the extent that it is, it's not my style all the time. Connection. I know I mentioned this earlier, all of my introverts cringe. Once again, connection can look different for everyone. So when I'm giving these vivid portrayals of young monkeys or infant children who are just falling apart and dying, dying, I mean physically are dying from not getting the connection that they need so desperately. I'm not trying to say here that the more people you connect with, the more healthy you are. This is, again, something that comes up frequently, especially in an extroverted culture like ours. There's this sense that the more connections you have, the healthier you, you will likely be. Uh, and that's just not true. You just want to know that there is a person in your life who cares about you. Just one person could be enough for some. It doesn't have to be a wide circle. So connection can look different for everybody. And for some people, having a connection with a person through Skype or, or via Facebook is extremely robust and it's soothing and, and they appreciate that. So even though there's a lot of research to back up the fact that we seem to do particularly well when the human is right in front of us, that's not to say that connection can't be had through other means. Uh, and in the physical time, a lot of times we've, I mean, in many gyms that you go to, there's this mantra of no pain, no gain. And this is terrible for highly sensitive people. Terrible. I, it doesn't work. <laughs> and so there's this sense, too, that, oh, if it's aerobics, it must be hard. I think there was a comedian, I think it was Jay Leno, who had said, you know, I'm not going to take up running until I see a person who's running and who's smiling at the same time. I haven't seen that yet, so I'm waiting. And he had a great point, because I don't know if I've ever smiled when I've done it either. But, you know, it can mean Zumba. It can mean cardio yoga. Uh, you can dance to your favorite music, you know, singing along to a hairbrush as though you're the singer in the song. You know, I mean, it's just movement that feels like recess. This is something I really want to emphasize. It does not have to be painful. And in fact, it's best served when not painful. Uh, in terms of time in, again, for highly sensitive people, most of them don't struggle with time in. It's mostly just justifying the need for it. Like, oh, I... I it's easy for us to go, oh, I will do that soon as. But it is imperative we have it. A lot of times, though, time in, we imagine, is, you know, requires us to sit, you know, cross-legged on the floor, you know, singing out, um, 
and I'm sure that that works just fine, but it doesn't have to be done that way. You can have time in while doing the dishes. You can have time in um, staring at the clouds. There, so time in is really just any period of time when you're focused on a thing for a segment of time. Um, downtime, again, this too can look different for all people. It's important to remember it's not focused. So time in, you're quietly focusing. When it's downtime, you are off in space. This particular time is especially helpful for highly sensitive people because when you're allowing downtime, we think of it as being unproductive, but really what it's allowing is for the brain to recharge. It's for this reason that folks like Einstein came up with such brilliant concepts and ideas. He was perpetually allowing his brain to recharge. And then, yeah, finally, sleep time. Uh, not everybody needs the same amount of sleep. I dated a man once who needed 9 to 10 hours a day, uh, to which, you know, somewhere between this pea green envy and my pure anger around not being able to get those levels of sleep myself, uh, I sort of was just like, oh, I hate you. I didn't really hate him, but ah. And for him, he said, you don't understand. I would love it if only six hours were enough for me. That's four hours more of my life I'd get back. But I get pulled toward the bed. I'm desperate for sleep. And in my case, six to seven hours seems just fine. I think closer to seven, the better. But when I get eight hours of sleep, I don't sleep the day after. So... <laughs> Um, so yeah, like when people say, yeah, you know, seven to nine hours of sleep is ideal, there is actually some level of, um, ambiguity there. And evidently there's even a recognized pattern where if you fall asleep at eight and you wake up at like one to two and then you're up a couple of hours and then fall asleep again and wake up again at six or seven or, I don't know, some combination thereof, that too is a common pattern found that was noted in periods of time when humans didn't have regular schedules, at least not regular in the way we know them. So it's important to get sleep, but it's also important to know that if you don't get it in accordance to with what other people are suggesting is dogma, you'll probably be fine. It's just about figuring out what's right for you. And finally, in the same way with nutrition, for me, small frequent meals work really well. Um, I seem to do really well if I allow 12 hours of fasting, uh, so when I go to bed for, to the point when I eat breakfast, that, that seems to work well for me. And then, you know, again, just eating small frequent meals in the period of time that I'm eating, all of those things work well for me. Um, when I'm eating each snack, I always have something with a little bit of protein and something with some fiber because that makes me feel nourished. And I've talked a lot about nutrition in other podcasts, so if you want more detail, I highly recommend you revisit them or, you know, I can always redo some of them uh, in later podcasts. But that's what works for me, but that doesn't work for everyone. Some people can do crazy intermittent fasting where they're fasting for 16 hours and eating only eight, or they're fasting for a whole weekend and then eating what they want for the other five. I couldn't do that. Um, some people do better eating only three meals a day. Others, you know, having seven meals a day is better, but just really small. So it's not about having a perfect diet. There is no one perfect diet. There's just what works well for you. And if you want to know if you were successful in developing an eating plan, you had more energy leaving the table than you had when you got there. If you leave the table wanting to take a nap, you did something wrong. Uh, if you leave the table 
fiercely hungry, you did something wrong. But if you feel like, yeah, I can go do stuff now, good job. You win. So yeah, this is, I'm putting all this together to once again kind of help you see the larger picture around what is required to reduce the frequency of things like anxiety and depression. The trick for highly sensitive people, so far as I've been able to gather, is that uh, justifying the need for these things, because from what I've been able to glean, uh, get, it's really having time, time in, exercise time, sleep time, downtime. Those are the things that our culture don't recognize quite as much. Playtime we're good at, we work hard, we play hard. So focus time, connecting time, and playtime. And even to some extent physical time, I think we in the West here, uh, we, we honor those pretty well. We've got a lot of infrastructure for those things. But sleep time, time in, and downtime are, there. everyone needs them. But highly sensitive people need more of it as a rule. And they're not condoned and they're certainly not con encouraged. If you need more sleep or if you need more time in or if you need more downtime, you're, you're almost seen as being weak. But we're not weak. It's not a weakness. It just You have a smartphone that needs to be recharged more frequently than your flip, flip phone did. That doesn't mean that your smartphone is weak. It just means due to its higher capacity, it needs to be charged more often. You just make that trade. Everything has a trade-off. So when it comes to highly sensitive people, having these things in place is essential. And in particular, the ones that we all struggle with are those three. And what I would say about sort of meeting all of these ingredients is there's, it's not just that there's no one right way to do it for any, for a group of people. There isn't even just one right way to do it for you. You might find that there are weeks that go by where you are just enthralled with a project and every waking moment is spent on this focused time and you're blissful. And then all of a sudden you're exhausted and you're like, oh, I'm going to take a couple of days and just do nothing. And it's like, okay, there's your downtime and your time in. Well, that's fine. Ideally, there's more of a balance, uh, primarily just because I think we need to move every day. We need to sleep every day. Uh, we need some form of connection. But I guess what I'm saying is it's not like you need to meet every one of them in equal amounts. For you, maybe you are just on, you know, practically high when you're moving. And so for you, spending two or three hours at the gym is no problem. It's like, ah, it's my bliss. For another person, it's playing video games. It really doesn't matter how you pull this recipe together. The important thing is just having all of the ingredients at some point in your life. Uh, when all of these pieces are in place, the likelihood of things developing, such as anxiety or depression, they get dramatically reduced because you're feeding the brain what it needs. You know, you're not giving it the wrong fuel or too little of what you need in order to make the car run. So I really recommend taking a look for yourself. When you look at all eight of these things, focus time, play time, connect time, physical time, time in, downtime, sleep time, and eat time, <laughs> what area do you think you're strongest at? What is an area that you feel like you get everything you need uh, in, in abundance? And then what are the areas that you find yourself struggling with? What are the areas that you think need a little bit of love? I guarantee you that when you are meeting all of these things, the likelihood of you developing depression or anxiety is extremely lower. That's not a very eloquent way of saying it. Uh, it's not just that the likelihood is lower, 
um, the intensity of it reduces. So it's not like, oh, you will never be depressed. It's more like when you feel sad, your capacity to sit quietly in the sadness improves. And so there might be sadness, there might be anger, all of the, you know, it's not like, oh, do all of these things and you will just always be happy. It doesn't work that way. Rather, when you do all of these things, your ability to be resilient in the face of hardship increases. So it's not like you won't have difficulty in your life or hard emotions. It's that there will be less suffering, less resistance to the experiences coming at you, and you'll rebound quicker. When highly sensitive people, when anybody does this stuff, they are better human beings. When highly sensitive people do this stuff, they can be superheroes. So I really cannot stress enough how important it is to figure out what recipe works well for you and constantly be in conversation with it. Because what works for you today might not work for you tomorrow. The amount of time, like downtime that you need today might, will probably be very different at the age of 70. It just will. So with that, I'm just sort of going to close for the day. Uh, but I love, love, love to hear any uh, insights, questions that you might have, uh, disagreements too. Like if you have any, like, uh, any criticism or things that you think I need to improve on, I'd love to, love, love, love to hear from you. Uh, you can reach me at my website, www.thehealthysensitive.com. Uh, you can also email me. You can the easiest way is to email me through the website, and I do believe there's also the capacity to do that directly through uh, thehealthysensitive.podbean.com. But really, again, my website is the fastest way. You can connect with me by phone, and you can connect with me by email. Uh, and you can follow me on Twitter, uh, healthyhsp, and Instagram, uh, healthysensitive. Uh, yeah, I think that's just about it. So I wish you well. Look forward to uh, checking in with you next week. And in the meantime, stay well. Have a wonderful day.